All right, well, I guess we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, we're kind of continuing on with the church history seminar. So this will be session nine, the early English and American Baptist. Um, so thanks for being here. It's good to see all of you. And um, so I hope we can get something out of this. So if y'all would, let's pray together before we start. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love you so much and thank you for this time to be here and to learn about, uh, about your word and to learn about our history and to learn about our path here. Uh, we just thank you for your your grace and your mercy and how that's penetrated the timeline of history and we just thank you for uh, the gospel story that that uh, in, endures forever uh, thank you for your son jesus amen okay so this is a whole session kind of focused on baptist so we get to talk about some baptist today um the first little section is kind of what does it mean to be a baptist and that's it's going to kind of be an ongoing sort of explanation based on the history and kind of what, what, what happens through this session. So kind of basically speaking, Baptist is a, it's a large Protestant denomination known for the practice of baptizing only professing believers via immersion. Um, typically, they subscribe to the tenets of Calvinism and believe in the autonomy of the local congregation. Baptist emerged in the context of Puritanism and they began practicing believers' baptism as an indication of a regenerate church membership. So they became a major force of the spread of the gospel in America and around the world. So their path, you know, the, the theological path Baptists have followed is the closest to us most likely, and that's why there's kind of a whole section kind of dedicated to, to Baptists. So this Baptist in England section... Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's going on here, and some of it's going to jump around, but this will kind of give some overview, and then it's going to, give, it's going to go back and give some specific um, examples and talk about some specific people. So Baptists got their name by way of anachronism. So their opposition called them Anabaptist. An Anabaptist requires that baptismal candidates be able to make a confession of faith that's freely chosen, and then, so they thereby reject infant baptism. Most Anabaptists adhered to a literal, literal interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, and that precludes taking oaths and serving in the military and even participating in local civil government. So in, in, in really thinking about that, the early Baptists were Puritans who kind of took it to a Puritan logical conclusion. So we're gonna trace out the origins of the Baptists out of the English separatist tradition. Uh, there, were, there were countless men who found themselves unable to subscribe to the articles of faith of the Church of England, and they chose rather to organize separate churches outside of the interference of kings and bishops. So in this way of thinking, it's best to refer to those as Baptistic Congregationalists, and that is a Congregationalist who adopted the practice of a believer's baptism. The central principle that these separatists held was that the church members were bound together, not by their location and geography, but by entering into a covenant with one another based on per a personal decision. So for them, the, that covenant is what made a church a church, not just where you were. And the church should never be confused with the rest of society. So they were uh, wanting some autonomy to their congregation. So, in consequence, infant baptism was, must be rejected for it takes granted that one becomes a Christian simply by being born in a supposedly Christian society. So, several implications followed when they kind of took this 
stance. So one, there was no outside authority over the local congregation. Every member is equally responsible for the work of the church and upholding the covenants. And each member of the church needed to show evidence of true conversion. Most of these uh, reformers were also pacifists and they thought yeah, they should not take up arms. And that was uh, kind of controversial in some areas because there was a lot of persecution and threats from other countries and Catholic armies. So after a while, many believers thought they needed to take an even more radical approach and totally separate into a congregation of what they called true believers. And so they called themselves the Brethren and they, they founded their own congregation and began baptizing believers and eventually doing that by immersion. At first it was uh, by pouring water. So these Anabaptists, which means rebaptizers, um, they called them that because they were, were baptizing people after their profession of faith, even though they had been uh, baptized as an infant. They began to draw a lot of opposition from Catholics as well as other Protestants. So most of that was theological conflict, but some were persecuted for just for being oppositional or subversive. Uh, Luther and Zingli, Zingli, I'm not sure how to say his name, they kind of believed that the church and states could kind of operate side by side, almost supporting each other. And that really didn't threaten the, the powers that be, but the Anabaptists did threaten the social order because they believed the structures of power in society should not be transferred into the church. So the Anabaptists insisted on the church as a voluntary community totally distinct from the civil community. So all of this subversiveness led to persecution. Some were condemned to death, convicted of treason and heresy and sedition. Uh, since one was a religious offense and the other was a civil crime, they were, um, they were subject to ecclesiastical and civil courts. So uh, therefore many martyrs uh, were made and ironically a lot of them were drowned. <clears throat> so many of these first leaders in that movement were scholars but then the second generation after going through persecution they became a little bit more resentful and became a little bit more revolutionary. So um, as time passed, some areas became predominantly Anabaptist and some tolerance for them grew. Uh, some cities, like the power of the cities, were balanced between Catholics and Protestants, so there, the persecution was less. Uh, but in some areas, there were still hotbeds like Strasbourg and Munster, where that was probably like the peak of the revolutionary Anabaptist and the Catholic powers. So the Anabaptists there proclaimed that where they were was to be the New Jerusalem. So they forced the Catholics out and took over the city. Of course, that didn't go over well. And that led to a long and deadly siege that ended with the death of most of those Anabaptist leaders and basically their, their movement. So that, this fall of the revolutionary Anabaptist led way again to another round of pacifism. Um, and they were striving for even a greater faith to keep their pacifist ways. So there was a man named Menno Simons. He was a Dutch Catholic priest who embraced Anabaptism and he began to lead like-minded followers that later were to be called the Mennonites. Because they refused civil and military service, they were scattered throughout uh, Eastern Europe, Russia, and then later North America where they were offered 
uh, some degree of religious tolerance. And by the 20th century, Mennonites were the main branch of the old Anabaptist movement of the 16th century, still insisting on their pacifist stance. In 17th century England, uh, religion was almost totally subject to the whims of whichever monarch was in charge. So for King James I, which early 1600s, uh, Puritanism posed a threat to his supremacy, so he didn't want to be subject to the judgments of the common people. So his official decree was that Episcopalianism would continue to be the form of, of government in the Church of England. So a lot of ministers refused to subscribe to that doctrine, and so they were fired. About 300 initially were, but many kind of backtracked under a lot of pressure and kind of you know, succumbed to the pressure. About 90 ministers held out and they were deprived of their um, ministry positions and they became known as separatists. And that was over their conviction of the need to separate from the Church of England. So the section on Baptistic Congregationalist, um, we're gonna talk about John, I'm gonna call it, say, Smythe. Maybe it's old spelling of Smith, but Smythe is more fun, so. John Smythe, so he was a Cambridge uh, educated minister, which they were they were putting out a lot of uh, great ministers. He was in the Church of England, and he became under Puritan influence when he was ordained. And he left the Church of England and helped form another church around 1606. And so, all 43 of members of his congregation, the Smythe Congregation, uh, signed the Church Confession and Statement of Faith, which basically stated that they were the Lord's free people, joining themselves into a church estate. They had several elders, uh, many whom taught the word regularly. They had two offices in the church that they permitted. One was elder and one was deacon. Elders governed and taught the word and deacons met the practical needs in the church and they allowed women to serve as deacons also. Uh, but at that point they still were not Baptist. So in 1609 they, he became convinced that believer's baptism was biblical and infant baptism was not. So he baptized himself first by pouring not immersion, and then, then he baptized the rest of the congregation. Um, not long after arriving in Amsterdam, he tried to lead his congregation in uniting with a Mennonite church, and that eventually led to his excommunication by his church congregation, and then most of them returned to England. But he still kind of serves as an example of how believers' baptism logically developed as an outgrowth of understanding the local church as a community of saints under a covenant together to live faithfully to God's word. And that's kind of the, the, the overall theme of this whole section is just seeing examples of how um, these people put into practice what seemed to be biblically accurate and true and that those things that we still do today. And we're gonna, we're gonna go through some uh, mistakes also. Uh, the next one's Henry Jesse. Uh, he's another Cambridge minister. He was ordained in 1627. And like a lot of others, he couldn't stand the re-Romanizing of the Church of England. So uh, he embraced nonconformity, and he was uh, removed from his position for not abiding by all the ceremonies of the, the Catholic Church. And so as all the old customs were coming back, he, he famously said that popery much increaseth which is a great quote. Popery much increaseth. 
So he moved to London in 1635, planned on moving to New England, but instead joined another congregation with two other guys, Henry Jacob and John Lathrop. And so the famous JLJ Church, as it would later to be known, was formed uh, by Jacob in 1616, and then Jesse became their, their pastor. And they were kind of at the leading edge of the separatist Puritan movement. So he would, Jesse, Henry Jesse would lead that congregation for over 25 years. Uh, he never married, chose a single life, so as not to be, you know, weighed down and encumbered with wife, family, and so he could totally be devoted to uh, his sacred work. And I didn't have it in here, but he had a famous quote that he had over his office door, and basically it said, if you're not here, like, to talk about serious stuff, uh, get away or start helping me. So he, he seemed like he didn't play around. So he was a brilliant linguist and a scholar, and he knew Greek, Hebrew, Chaldean, Syriac. In 1652, the House of Commons commissioned a revision of the King James 1611 Bible, and they picked him to be one of their nine translators. And he was very happy to do it because of the Episcopalian influence in the translation before that he was hoping to correct. So we're moving on to some creeds and confessions. So the first one uh, we'll talk about is 1644, the first London Baptist Confession. So in 1644, seven Reformed Baptist churches met in London to write a confession of faith. Uh, the confession contains 53 articles, uh, and some biggies that it contains is the doctrine of the believer's church, which means that one becomes a member of the church by new birth and profession of faith. And in that uh, confession, they also have uh, an article on believer's baptism, in which is the practice of baptizing those who are able to make a conscious profession of faith. So Jesse's first conviction was to change uh, the mode of baptism. And so since he was a linguist, he became convinced around 1642 that immersion of the whole body into the water made the best sense of the Greek interpretation. So, um, and also he agreed that the symbolism of baptism as a burial into Christ's death and resurrection from the grave made the most logical sense also. So around 1644, um, the question of like the proper type of baptism kind of came up at, their, at the JLJ church. And after they discussed it with their elders and close friends, uh, they became convinced of believer's baptism. So uh, they couldn't find any argument against it, and then he was baptized in 1645. So he changed, um, you know, like even though he changed his conviction about believer's baptism, he didn't really force it onto the church to cause a split. Um, he recognized that since believer's baptism was not originally part of, like a prerequisite for their original church, he didn't uh, he kind of thought it would be a bad idea to force that on the existing members and professed believers if they didn't want to be rebaptized again. So um, he kind of patiently preached what he thought to be the truth of believers' baptism and just uh, prayed that they would just change their mind. So the next one, uh, 1689, the second London Baptist Confession. Uh, this was kind of just designed to present a clear outline of biblical truth to all to anyone who was interested. Uh, and since the Bible, which is the, the fully inspired word of God, it doesn't change from one age to another. 
the truths contained in the confession are based upon scripture and they applied that to be relevant today as it would have been any other time. In 1677, Reformed Baptist anonymously published the Second London Confession uh, because there were still some persecution against ministers who voiced this confession. Um, and it was mostly based off of the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration. And so the Baptists kind of worked from those as a basis for, their, for this confession. Um, they made some slight revisions to accommodate, you know, kind of bab baptistic differences uh, on things like the structure of the church, baptism, Lord's Supper, church government, things like that. Um, but in 1689, there was more freedom given to those ministers who were dissenting in England, and this, this confession was republished and signed. Um, and it's called the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, or the Second London Confession, because it was the second confession published by the Reformed Baptist in London. So now we're kind of moving to Baptists in America. And so the first question there says, why the New World? And, and just from like history, you kind of know some basics of that, but it was due to persecution in England. So many, many Puritans were fleeing to the Netherlands and America where they could freely gather and worship uh, according to their convictions. Um, just as in England, many of these Puritans became convinced of believers' baptism, and one of those was Roger Williams. And so that's the next guy we'll talk about. So um, he um, was kind of seeking to avoid, though, some of the intolerance of the Puritan colonies. So he wanted a colony based uh, totally on religious freedom from civil authorities' involvement in your personal life and your personal relationship with God. So um, he also was uh, kind of a staunch believer that the, the land they were on was stolen from Native Americans. So he moved around a fair bit trying to find a, a home that was welcoming to him and he in, ended up buying land from the Indians and founded the colony of Providence. So there are a lot of people that didn't like his mode of practice. So he was persecuted and they kind of tried to destroy his communities and church so he traveled back to England and he obtained the parliament's recognition of the colony of Rhode Island and the Providence plantations so he kind of got the official stamp so his church eventually became Baptist um, one of its members baptized him and then he baptized everyone else um, he deeply respected the Indians and eventually it led him to to believe their religion was acceptable in the eyes of God, the same as Christianity. Uh, and he ended up believing that they didn't have to be saved to become Christians. That led him to further attacks. And eventually, he even got pushed probably a little or you know, skewed more radical. Uh, and he kind of ended up believing that all churches were false and scripture was to be interpreted strictly just in a spiritual term, depending on how the person depending on the person. But what he's most remembered for uh, is his writings on religious toleration. So in, in 1644, um, he had a publication in London that made the case that Old Testament laws requiring Israel to punish idolaters did not authorize the state to persecute religious dissenters. So his argument for religious toleration was was grounded in, in the doctrine of relationship of the relationship between the new covenant and the old covenant 
And so that, and that was extremely controversial at the time, so they basically, the House of Commons ordered that all his books be burned. Um, baptism uh, and religious toleration kind of started to drive a wedge between Baptist and Congregationalist. Uh, they felt that you can't really coerce someone into having saving faith, but they believed that the magistrate was required by God to suppress heresy. So John Cotton believed this, and he kind of and he wrote that an offender must be punished. So there was a guy named Obadiah Holmes who was lashed 31 times for not paying his fine that was imposed on him for meeting with the Baptist. Rough crowd. So eventually, uh, Roger Williams, uh, they, they formed the Charter of Rhode Island and the Providence Plantations, and it, and it stated that no person shall be punished or called into question for any differences in opinion in matters of religion and can freely have their own judgments in matters of religion. So he was you know, ahead of his time in that area here. So now we're moving to some associations. So through the colonial period, Baptist churches were kind of springing up you know, across all the colonies. Uh, and there were a lot of noteworthy men who started churches uh, in Maine, Charleston. Um, there, were, there were several big churches in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, in, in, including a, a large church in Philadelphia in 1698. So these city churches uh, in Charleston and Philadelphia established associations to help regularize practices, help deal with disputes, kind of like prepare um, ministry candidates, and then starting to support missions. So, the, you know, these Baptist churches were congregational, uh, but they then, because of some growth, they became what's called connectionalists too, which means that they believed in partnering together with other like-minded churches to support um, local missions and to help with um, membership, discipline type things. So these associations adopted the Confession of Faith, uh, such as the Philadelphia Confession of 1742, and they would meet once a year. So by the early 1800s, moving on to the next section, uh, Baptists were pretty much, you know, they kind of had secured religi religious liberty. They weren't um, persecuted nearly as much, so they were kind of now expanding. They were looking at missions and expansion organization. So uh, Judson's adoption of the Baptist convictions brought a lot of the associ Baptist associations together that might have ended up kind of being independent and they would have you know, kind of withered away. So uh, up until that time, the mission work was supported by each little local association in its own little territory. So um, in 1814, they had a big meeting to uh, kind of figure out a way to partner for a, a national mission level or goal. Um, a couple years later, they established uh, the National Baptist Theological College. And then in 1832, the, the precursor to the North American Mission Board was formed. And so as this more national-minded approach was growing, there was uh, growing tension between the people who wanted to keep things more local versus go more national, or I guess even global too. So the regional-minded people 
really kind of ended up undoing some of the national-minded people's alliances and associations, and that was really kind of hinged on the issue of slavery. So, so now we're moving into Baptist and slavery. So, um, you know, there's no, there's no question that the existence of race-based slavery is awful, like an awful stain on our history. In the 1840s, the fact is every, every major American Protestant denomination was split basically among North and South lines over the issue of slavery and the Baptists were, were no, no exception. So the, the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845, so in 1844, Georgia Baptists sent a test case to the Baptist Home Mission Society and it was this, they, they, a slaveholder wanted to become a missionary to the Cherokee Indians. His appointment was voted down. The Alabama Baptist Convention asked whether a slaveholder could become a missionary basically at all, and they said no. So in 1845, delegates from nine state conventions gathered in Augusta, Georgia to form the Southern Baptist Convention. So that's how that started. But as Baptists continued to grow, slavery did too. Uh, some white Baptists condemned it. However, over time, most white Baptists in the South kind of made peace with it. Um, whether they owned slaves or not, they just kind of saw it as like one of these inevitable parts of America that was, was too big. So they did basically generally agree that the Bible condemned man-stealing is what they called it. So they, they recognized it as flawed at some, some level, but they couldn't agree on what to do now that it, it existed and it was where they were. So what they did agree on at the time was that there was at least an obligation to provide religious instruction for their slaves. So these, these views to evangelize American slaves were, you know, were pretty controversial. Many saw the religious instruction of slaves as a pathway to emancipation and they thought any, any form of education would just encourage insubordination. So there were even laws put, into, put on the books in certain areas that would punish and, and even imprison white people if they instructed slaves to read or write. So this made, it, it put a, a huge dampening effect on any progression in that area and really cooled the efforts of people that were trying to you know, provide just even just religious instruction. So now we're going to move into a couple of these uh, pivotal uh, revolts. So Nat Turner's revolt in Virginia in 1831. So his revolt was of enslaved Virginians. So his group killed between 55 to 65 white people, making it the deadliest slave revolt in U.S. history. So their rebellion was suppressed within a few days, and he was able to stay in hiding for about a month. So there was, after that, there was a lot of fear amongst the white population in that, like right after that. So in turn, militia, mob-type um, groups killed uh, as many as 120 enslaved and even free black people. They restricted more rights uh, of their assembly and any other civil liberties that they could, uh, and they required white ministers to be present at all worship services in black churches. 
So the next section, uh, Joseph Spry Law, uh, he was born in 1808, and he, as his goal and mission, he worked tirelessly to establish independent African-American congregations in his county uh, in Georgia, Liberty, Georgia. So he was ordained as the minister of Sud Sunbury, Sudbury, Sunbury, one of those two, in 1830. So, and he felt that every man was equal in God's eyes. So he declined a lot of offers um, to go off and preach and, and teach and take um, maybe more lucrative positions just to stay to minister to the people um, and slaves of his county. So in May of 1846 at the Georgia State Baptist Convention, Mr. Law delivered an address to the masters to give their servants the gospel and by the best means possible, which means teaching them to read or reading it to them. And so, and then he, he kind of went on to really, really chide them for um, purposely suppressing and preventing the slaves' ability to learn how to read because that then prevented them from reading God's word. So he kind of laid, he kind of laid, um, Mr. Law laid the, he kind of laid the law down. So anyways, his work led to a lot of, a lot of fruit. And so by 1844, there were more African-American members of his Baptist churches in that association than white members. So now we're going to move into the growth of the black church. So. After the Vesey Revolt in Charleston, the Nat Turner Rebellion in 1831, everything changed because those revolts were blamed primarily on, on the black church. So almost every African-American church either had to become part of a white church that would supervise it or they had to dissolve the church and shut it down. So almost all black churches in the South were denied Autonomy, and they were placed under the, under the supervision of a local white Baptist church. So those churches then had to sign agreements and be subject. Basically, their church was enslaved to the white church. In the North, black churches had a, lot, had a greater degree of independence, and after the Civil War, uh, black churches were free to form independent religious institutions like seminaries and schools and publishing companies. So... Um, you know, through the Reconstruction era, you know, we witnessed one of the greatest periods of church growth in the history of the church. Hundreds of thousands of formerly enslaved people were baptized into membership into Baptist churches. And so by 1899, there were more black Baptists than Southern Baptist or Northern Baptist, respectfully. I think it was close to 1.7 million. Okay. So that kind of goes through like a, a lot of, you know, history and just kind of data points. But, um, you know, when we think about what, what it means to be Baptist, you know, if you kind of take a step back and think about more um, foundational things, we'll kind of go through a few of those now. So one, one thing it means to be confessional. And that means to stand with the historic confession, Baptist confessions of 1644, 1689, 1742, and 1853. I won't read those. But it also means to be Calvinistic. So we stand firmly on the doctrines of grace, and we're not ashamed of a God-centered view of the universe. 
Uh, it also means to be congregational, which means we're committed to the independence of the local church and the fact that every member has a job to do. It means to be a connectionalist, not a separatist. Um, we're committed to partnering with other churches of like faith and order for the growth of the mission of the church in Christ's kingdom. It also means to be covenantal. So we are convinced of the unity of the covenant of grace that's progressively revealed through scripture and, and inaugurated at Christ's death. It means to be credo-baptist, that only the truly converted ought to be baptized and enter into, into the duties and privileges of church membership. It means to have a high view of the conscience. So basically that we, we deny that the state has any power to coerce our conscience and it basically solidifies our independence and autonomy of our local church in the matters of our own faith and how we practice it. And then lastly, it does mean that we do have to live with contradictions. So we've seen persecution, death, destruction, injustices, um, and largely for American Christians, the lingering effects of slavery and the, the Baptist complicity with an unjust system. So that is all I have. Thank you all. If you all have any questions, I'll be glad for Ryan or Ben to answer them for you. So, thank you.